Greetings and welcome to Forever LDS. Keep your questions coming regarding when I might finish up Tennis Shoes Volume 13. Soon I hope to reply with something a little more concrete than soon. I hate to make promises, but yeah, it's very close. And to be quite honest, writing a novel does tend to interfere at times with releasing new episodes of this podcast on a predictable basis. My heartfelt thanks again to those stalwart listeners who have supported Forever LDS on Patreon and in other ways. I have plans to express that gratitude in a much more concrete way very soon. Special access to some special things. I'll give you just one hint. It will be unabridged. Today's episode is a real treat for me. I've known our guest, Gordon Jones, for more than a decade. Gordon spent most of his career working in Washington, D.C. His role? He was sort of a gatekeeper. A better word might be sheep herder. Succinctly put, Gordon devoted more than three decades to the task of helping conservative lawmakers to be, well, more conservative. He devoted his energies to help shape and promote conservative legislation and policies for the nation's lawmakers, i.e. the very politicians we see bloviating on the news every night. He personally knows and has served a large number of the United States senators and congressmen still in office to this day. He has met every American president since Richard Nixon and worked side by side with just about every Republican that the state of Utah ever sent to Washington. Folks like Chris Cannon and Orrin Hatch. Many listeners might not even know those names. Trust me, they were very important people in their day. Actual legislators. And it was Gordon's job to develop policy, serve as a political liaison, write speeches, offer analysis, and when called upon, help these bozos in their efforts to be elected or re-elected. Okay, maybe they weren't all bozos, but it's every American's legal right to call them that, and I proudly exercise that right. And it was Gordon's job to ensure that this American right was preserved. Gordon worked for and sometimes helped formulate some of the committees and organizations still operating to this day, such as the Heritage Foundation, Association of Concerned Taxpayers, the Seniors Coalition. But I'll stop there. I don't want listeners to fall asleep. After he left Washington, he came home to Utah and settled into semi-retirement. I can't believe he even put that term in his resume because... I've known very few people more active in a plethora of noble causes and pursuits, even prior to claiming that they were in semi-retirement. But most of Gordon's energies over the last decade have been devoted to the field of education, whether that was teaching government classes at various institutions of higher learning or editing tennis shoes novels before I sent them to my publisher. So if my publisher has ever thought, wow, that Chris Heimerdinger submits such polished manuscripts, it may be time to confess I cheat. First, I let Gordon get a hold of it, and every book he has touched is far better for it. The nicest thing for an author whose name happens to be on a book cover is the reader's presumption that they deserve all the credit for the book's merits which in my case is definitely not true, but more on that in the course of the interview. Last year, Gordon founded his own college of higher education called Mount Liberty Academy. 
And remember, this is a guy who's semi-retired, right? I was pleased to discover, I mean, I should have already assumed this because I know Gordon. I discovered that his philosophies on higher education, on life, and on eternal principles mirrored so many of my own. So today, Gordon and I are going to discuss that philosophy, which if we do it right, I hope will promote, restore, retrench, elevate what I believe to be critical ideas with the potential to have a far-reaching and long-lasting positive impact on the values of our free nation, on the lives of the next generation of our creators, leaders, and citizens, and subsequently, and more importantly, the salvation of souls, which is why I'm pleased to have Gordon as a special guest here on Forever LDS. Now the interview. I am here with Gordon Jones, who has a long and sordid history working for the United States government as a, as a policy wonk in the, what, 70s, 80s, 90s? Yeah, I started in the 70s, from 70s until the end of the 90s, yeah, so... 70s, 80s, 90s? 30 years. Working for politicians that you, I'm sure everybody remembers, people like Jake Garn. Correct. And... Of course, the Utah senator so long-running Orrin Hatch. Hatch. Technically, I never worked for Orrin, although I did uh, offer him policy advice from time to time. Well, that was primarily what you did, was your job was to design policy, which was for more of a conservative-type think tank, and then you would try and promote those ideas to congressmen and to yeah. senators and right. to the president himself. So you've met a lot of presidents and and all of those kind of things. And in your twilight years, you are, have shown a lot of interest in improving or getting rid of some of the flaws that may exist in modern education. Yes, that's uh, my current interest. I came back to Utah uh, in 2000, having been gone ever since high school, when I graduated in 1960. But when I came back in 2000, I started teaching at Salt Lake Community College, Utah Valley University, and then at a little school Politics, right? Social studies. Well, I taught uh, history, literature, and uh, government. uh, Government. Political science, government and policy, that that kind of thing. Then I taught at a very small school called George Wythe University, which was a liberal arts college. Here in Salt Lake City. Here in Salt Lake City. I think it actually originated either in Cedar City or St. George, but they moved up here in the 2000s sometime. But I I taught for them for two or three years before they finally dissolved and went away. So I decided I would start my own liberal arts college, and uh, and I did with some of the other, my colleagues from George Woods University. We started Mount Liberty College. We have just completed our first semester. Excellent. How many students were a part of your first semester? Our goal was to have 20, and we had 10. Ten. <laughs> Ten. Okay. So it's very much like a, uh, a Socratic dialogue, uh, a symposium. We have a professor, we sit around a table and uh, we read great books and we talk about the ideas that have made Western civilization what it is. So you had, of these 10, you had 90% LDS students. That's correct, yes. Okay. Uh, well, I really shouldn't say that because I don't know... For sure, that's sort of the judgment I came to. It's not a religious right. School, it's so not like you ask them, them what they are, but but it it became apparent that of the ten students, nine of them were were LDS. Yes. But one of your criticisms, observations, 
that you have made with regard to post high school education, yeah. uh, college education, has been that they're just not approaching it the right way. They're, what, what would be your philosophy or what were you trying to do different with the university that you have established? Well, modern education is increasingly about training. Your listeners will, will know this. You're, you need to go to college and get a good education so that you can get a good job. And that is not historically what education was all about. Well, I think it's also been had big holes poked in it because many millennials are finding that if they go major in some subject of particular interest, whether it's an esoteric kind of literature or even if it's archaeology, it's hard to get a job in well, many of those fields. That's correct, but it doesn't undermine the value of that kind of education. If all you're interested in is a job, then you need to go get trained for a job. You can do that at a vocational school, you can do that at a major university. I got trained for the career of education at a training school, Stanford University Graduate School of Education. It happens to be a very expensive uh, training school and a very uh, elitist, or maybe not elitist, but an elite training school. But a graduate school of education is a training school. It's not a, an institution of education. But even when you graduated, you think things have changed even since those days. What you're espousing is the value of just an overall education that will guide you to a greater fulfillment and enjoyment of life. That is correct. As yes. opposed to just a college that becomes so narrow-minded in its focus that all it's interested in doing is making you into a cog who can work in a certain field right. and and really know absolutely nothing about Shakespeare or history or, or, or the type of things which help you to better enjoy and be fulfilled by life. That's absolutely right. The purpose of education should be to teach you to appreciate the beauty of life, the connections between people, and I'm not just talking about connections between you and me sitting here in this room, but our connection back all the way back to the first guys wandering out of the cave and, and getting together and building the first fire or whatever. We are connected to all of those people. And we're connected to those who will come after us. Those are the kinds of connections that education provides. Increasingly, in the United States, and to some extent in other countries as well, education is, as I say, about training. And if they talk about any of these kinds of subjects, history, literature, uh, the, the psychology of people working together and, and cooperating, these are general education classes. These right, which course. most students these days, the mindset they have toward it is, let me get that stuff yeah, out of the get way. Get that stuff out of the way so we because can it's not important. real stuff. And then, of course, in a vocational school, they they actually will boast that, hey, we don't cover any of that stuff. We're right. just interested yes. in training you for a job. Yeah. What it does is it seems to create half-baked societies, half-baked people yes. who really don't know how to appreciate all of the things that are happening in in society with opposed any any kind of a cultural reference will zoop over <laughs> people's heads That's right. and yeah. okay. so what is would you feel is your overall philosophy or objective 
in creating Mount Liberty College. Our objective was to educate students to produce adults who understand truth, beauty, and virtue, who can apply the principles that have uh, motivated human beings from the beginning and help them integrate those into their lives so that they are fulfilled individuals, they can deal with each other, they can be helpful, useful, and productive with the kind of training that they will get after they get this basic set of uh, instruction under their belt, and maybe avoid killing themselves because they're frustrated <laughs> by the, well, so the kind of life that, that uh, pressures that come to us. Uh, and I mean, I'm serious about that. And, uh, uh, For most of my listeners, though, I think just the way they've been brought up, if they're young, they just don't think of education that way. Education is to get a job. Yes. And you're saying, no, 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 no. It has a bigger, wider purpose. Yes. And that has been, to a large degree, forgotten in today's educational system. Yep. You can, you can graduate with a degree in English without ever having read a Shakespearean play. You can graduate from most four-year colleges in the United States today without ever having read a play of Shakespeare. But the other thing that you're contending is that it wasn't always this way. No. Fifty years ago, colleges were interested in creating well-rounded people who could function in many, many aspects of society, benefit from it, contribute to it, and that really what they did as a profession wasn't the total definition of who they were as a human being. Yeah, I don't know when, because uh, I don't know when those changes took place, when we stopped uh, de-emphasizing the general nature of education and started concentrating on these much narrower function of training students 50 years ago 100 years ago i'm not sure but mount liberty college harks back to an earlier era when you read a great work of literature and you sat around the table and discussed why it was a great work of literature it doesn't mean that all of the characters in the great work of literature take Anna Karenina, for instance, as an example, were admirable characters. Many of them were not. But there are always admirable characters in those. And talking about why Anna Karenina is maybe not a role model we want to follow, where Levin is a role model that we might want to follow, that, that's the kind of education that... Uh, I'm guessing that even mentioning those titles, you're over the heads of most listeners. Probably so. But that's the <laughs> point. <laughs> cut that that's, that, no, 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 no. That's not the thing I want to cut out, because that is the point of why I was interested in speaking with you. Yeah. Because you're desperately trying to say, we're not just interested in, in creating people to fit certain cogs of producing what they need to for society. And I think a lot of kids... They'll decide who they are and who they want to be sometime in adolescence, possibly junior high or high school. They'll just define themselves as, I am a person who hates math. I am a person who hates English. And that definition never leaves them. So that any attempt that a class might make to expand their minds on topics that they've already decided are not part of their psyche and personality... They just uh, rebel against. They ignore. They don't take seriously. They're not even worried about what grade point average is. It's like, I just don't like literature. And that's just yeah. the way it is. And what you're saying is that's not the way that society used to think. It didn't used to say that you are only 
who you are as far as how you make a living. Right. So your goal is to harken back to an education system that simply celebrates what it is to be a human being. In fact, you were passionate about your definition that what your school wants to promote is beauty, an appreciation of beauty, virtue, and faith. Yep. Now, I know you. I know that you're a person who's very religious and has a strong testimony of the gospel. And yet, you are always somewhat reluctant about getting into a conversation that might trumpet that. or parrot. Of course, here on Forever LDS, that's what we do trumpet, yeah. and that's what we do sure. want to talk about and celebrate. But that's also one of your complaints, is so many parents are afraid now that when they send their kids off to college, it becomes a factory for atheists, a factory for anti-faith. Yeah. Basically... Uh, pummel you into thinking because you have a certain belief system that is lessening your ability to benefit from life. I mean, it's just smothering. It's suffocating as opposed to liberating. And you're saying, no, 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 no. Faith doesn't play that role. Faith can be liberating. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and is liberating. I don't know exactly what the numbers are. I have a colleague who uses them all the time, but it's something like, uh, and this has been going on for a long time, even back when I was an undergraduate back in the 1960s, you send your kids off to school as faithful members of the church or whatever faith that you adhere to. And, whatever is the conservative Christian Yeah, and, uh, and something, something like 60 or 70 percent of them will lose their faith over the course of those four years. Even if you send them to a religious school, Brigham Young University, Notre Dame. Uh, now you're getting controversy. You're saying, should, you're saying that BYU I guess I actually say. is starting to develop a reputation, possibly, of squelching faith as opposed well, to helping it grow and develop? I have no desire to get into a uh, spitting No, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I do either, but, but I want to no, but I want to just recognize that Latter-day Saints and the parents of children that are going off to school, they always have to have in the back of their mind hope that they've given them enough of a foundation where all the opposing ideas that might be thrown at them by very sophisticated college professors is not going to be destructive to yeah. the faith that they grew up with. They As have, a parent, we're all concerned with that. I think they have a right to expect that the college does not actively try to undermine the faith of the children that they're sending there. I think they have a, an actual right there. Now but, that And that is diametrically opposed to the way that most, both our high schools and the society itself, they are saying, no, 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 your challenge is to be sent out there so that we can rework your brain. Yeah. Let me just step back to where I was a second ago and say, if you send your kids off to school, odds are 60 70 percent of them will lose their faith. If you send them to a religious school, BYU, Notre Dame, whatever, 40 percent of them will lose their faith anyway. Now, is it higher or lower? BYU, I don't know. I'm just saying you're putting BYU into the, a class of religious colleges. So even at schools which are nominally and organizationally religious, sponsored by religions, the, the effect on the faith of their students is not measurably different. Mount Liberty College is not a religious school. We claim to come out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, but we actively, as a board of directors, as a faculty of Mount Liberty College, 
we will seek to reinforce religious belief and not undermine it. And we don't see any, anything... Act, what do you mean by actively seek to reinforce religious faith? Well, I, I probably mostly what, what I'm talking about there is providing a role model, providing an example. I consider myself, and I, you do too, because so, you've told me this, I consider myself to be a smart person. Have I said that? You have. What, a, what an arrogant thing to say. Let me tell you a little, little story. When I was a little kid, I said to my mother one day, how come none of the smart people are members of the church? And she cited me some examples of some smart people that were. But even at that, you know, when I was young, this was something like seven or eight years old, I don't know, something like that. I had picked up somehow that there was an anti-intellectual component to religious education or to religious instruction. In, okay, in now I know I think what you're talking about, and it's that thing that I think a lot of religious tradition battles that people who are truly smart, Nobel Prize yeah. winning intellectuals, ah. somehow just can't fit into religious faith. Yeah. And yeah. no, and if you if that's what you want to classify me as, or yourself as, then that's true. I am someone who believes that there is no conflict between right. any intelligent topic I've ever pursued and my testimony of the gospel. And what we're experiencing in the world today, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how it's so different today than maybe it was in, say, 1920 or, or 1890, but there seems to be a lot less tolerance among secular intellectuals for people who have faith. And that drives me crazy because... I've never found anything I've ever learned when it comes to something that diametrically opposes faith. It's just an opinion. But when you get down to the brass tacks of the knowledge itself, the theories, the philosophies, whatever, they enhance faith. They fit into the doctrine and, and covenants idea that it is out of the best books that you will receive information that will benefit your life. It doesn't just say, just read the scriptures, nothing right. else. And seek out the best books. And that's what, that's what we're trying to do at Mount Liberty, is we seek out the best books, books that have stood the test of time. Personally, as I say, I have generally been regarded as a fairly smart person, so my students can look at me and they can say, Mr. Jones has read these books and these books and these books, which have destroyed the faith of a lot of these other people, and he's managed to get through that with his faith still intact. It must be possible to do that. And that's Well, how do you do that? Is it that you have to have some voice constantly in the background saying, okay, we know that if we read the Communist Manifesto by Marx, it doesn't automatically transform us into a Marxist. We can just basically take from that saying, oh, those are interesting ideas. I can see where somebody intellectually came up with those ideas and can still be a member of the human race. I just can disagree with them. And the freedom to disagree so often in a college setting is not permitted. It's harder and harder. Well, they keep trying to pigeonhole their own perception of what is truth, what is reality, what is good, what is bad. And too often, Judeo-Christian values are not a part of that value system. I mean, they're considered anathema to intelligence. You mentioned the intolerance of the uh, intellectual class these days. It's an out-and-out -out war. I mean, you read the books by Stephen Hawking and uh, uh, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, Dawkins. These people have declared war on anybody who believes in God and calls them dangerous. 
calls them mentally disturbed if they... Right, and that, of course, uh, echoes back to Karl Marx. He was maybe one of the first ones that came out and so over... I mean, he wasn't the first, but he definitely no, has Plato a reputation today. Plato? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but then Plato contradicts himself so well, often. Well, true, too. And talks about his belief in the invisible and in the spiritual. Mm, yes, and, yes. But I don't think Karl Marx has many exceptions to his philosophy that... Religion is the opiate of the people, or is that Lenin? But anyway, the point is that we, we definitely had these voices in centuries past. I don't think they've ever been as loud, no. and they've never been as That's... much part of the common acceptance of reality. And they've never been as entrenched in the faculties of universities as they are today. That's... Well, you know, you can't watch an evening of news. I mean, you can't really get involved in any media without constantly being reminded of that. If you are religious, then you are a weak link in the progression of mankind. <laughs> yes, yes. And you and totally, so we, your college, your philosophy of education is in total opposite. I mean, you, you don't believe that, you don't support that. So we strip our young people of their faith and then we wonder why they kill themselves. Well, there would be agnostics or atheists who would come at you and say, ah, they're not all killing themselves. They're actually better off. And, and even if they do kill themselves, maybe that was the best choice anyway. I mean, it's all going to end anyhow, so what difference does it make? Well, this nihilistic uh, picture of humanity, I have a hard time not believing that it has some contribution to increasing rates of suicide. People are made to feel that we're all just a, a bunch of randomly assembled cells anyway, ganglions, there's nothing afterwards. Life is tough, so why not just opt out of it? Well, what is the challenge? I mean, here's the challenge for modern thinkers. How do they immerse themselves in the theories of Charles Darwin or in modern science or astronomy or the things that many people interpret as being diametrically opposed to faith and religious belief and come out with the ability to say that actually is going to benefit my eternal salvation. That particular argument will not. I mean, this is really the game of being a human being, of being a faithful human being. You're constantly having to do that. You have to call through the information that you receive and you have to decide what's what. You have to decide what's valid and what's invalid. You do. Maybe a hundred years ago, people felt more free to do that. They felt like they could study everything secular without feeling like it also has to challenge their faith. Today, without exception, challenges their faith. So they have to be more on their toes. They have to be more, I don't know if it's a feeling that they have to be more defensive or have a stronger testimony, but that would be what most of us who are parents will think is, I've just got to give them such a strong testimony, a spiritual revelatory conviction of the truth before I send them off to let all these seculars pick apart their brain. Well, I think parents should do that. They should bring up children, educate their children, bring them up to have as strong a testimony as possible. But Children go off to college at a very vulnerable age, as you, oh, as it's you know. Oh, that free agency thing. It's just terrible. Yeah, so you have to equip them with the tools to analyze what it is they're going to be exposed to when they go to college or, or send them to a college like ours where we, where we provide that. You've mentioned, so far you've mentioned Marx and you mentioned Darwin. The third of the three great frauds is Freud, of course. And what all those three have 
in common is a denial of the capacity of human beings to make rational choices and to act for themselves. All three deny free will. Darwin because of determinism, Marx because of his historical determinism, and Freud because of his psychological determinism. Uh, all, all these guys, by the way, they were contemporaries. They're all late 18th, yes, yes, late 19th century personalities. From, from, from uh, 1850 then, you know, to 1930, yes. At least with the profession of psychiatry or psychology, you did have Jung, Jung come in and at least say, oh, I think there is something to this metaphysical stuff. So we have a bit of a balance provided by him, although that's a way oversimplification of, of Jung. But the idea is... We had certain personalities who created a perception of education that still echoes today. And just to put it bluntly, they threaten the testimonies of faithful people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being put in a position where, in fact, you have to go through the crucible of questioning. Sure. Yes. You yes. have to go through the crucible of, of saying, well, you know, this is really diametrically opposed to my belief system. So you said something about parents need to instill in their children tools to be able to help them to get all of the benefits possible from secular education, but still preserve their testimony. What are those tools? Well, um... I gotcha. I gotcha in a toughie. Yeah, you do. And, and there's two ways to think about it. One is that parents have to either equip their children with the tools and enabling them to, to do this kind of analysis, or they need to send them someplace where that kind of thinking is taught. I mentioned Anna Karenina a, a few minutes ago. Which One, is a, which is a great Russian novel. The great Russian novel, yeah. And Anna Karenina is, in the end, she kills herself. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. You know what? Tragedy is part of life. Well, it is. And, yeah. and we have to be able to observe people's tragic decisions and people's tragic choices in life. And instead of saying, oh, they're right, it's all hopeless, we're supposed to come away with a thematic lesson, which helps us to understand the choices they made were wrong. And that's what we really try and do with all of the things that we take in, whether it's literature or science or, or whatever, is find the balance. Every bit of knowledge that we gain in this life rises with us in the resurrection. I mean, that's definitely a standard understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we accept that. But then it becomes a little more blurry, and we're like, should I consume that knowledge? How will it endanger either my testimony or my spirit to consume that knowledge? And many people, they face these choices all the time. It's like, we can't even watch television commercials without having <laughs> uh, our, our sexuality or views of morality challenged or tested. Even on the Hallmark Channel. There we go. You know, and there's no safe territory. There used to be. We used to be able to say, here's my yeah. safe territory and yeah. let, me just, let me just avoid that other territory. Now, if we have any love for storytelling or the arts or beauty, as you put it, we're going to find ourselves face-to-face -face with stuff which is offensive to our religious belief. And there's many people, I mean, for a long time, I think Latter-day Saints have been content to say, we just take overt steps to avoid those things, and we still should, but it's impossible to avoid in so many circumstances now. So in a sense, oh man, when you have so much 
profanity and filth and immorality thrown at you by sources that are not disapproving of those, uh, what I would consider flaws, then it forces a person in this generation, I mean, it'll do one of two things. It'll either make you numb so that you're really immersing yourself in a movie that's rated R and full of profanity and you're not hearing the profanity anymore and maybe it's even becoming a part of your thoughts and instead of rejecting it you're becoming like it or you are able to glean what's valuable and totally make an intellectual separation and reject what is immoral or what is corrosive and that's a dangerous game I mean, that's a dangerous game because many people, most people, I I don't know about most people, we all have to face it because no aspect of our life is going to completely shelter us from situations where our ears and eyes are offended. Unfortunately, that's right. So what we have to do... But we don't have to immerse ourselves. I mean, many people have no, they put no limits on themselves whatsoever. And I think eventually it is corrosive, especially if you're constantly making choices where you know it's going to challenge your personal virtues, your personal idea of what is good and what is evil. Eventually that will make you numb. Maybe it's just a matter of intent. If you're unintentionally in a situation, obviously you're not accountable for it. But if you intentionally indulge in entertainment, literature, beauty, your impression of beauty that is overtly immoral, then maybe there is a consequence to the the strength of your spirit and testimony. But if it's something that you couldn't avoid... But but then you say, well, okay, then I I can't even read Shakespeare because Shakespeare obviously is is often full of some pretty tawdry things. (laughs) And he was interested in putting the mirror up to life and basically just showing the way humankind behaves and not really filter it. I'm not sure I have that philosophy as an artist. I really don't. My, well, I, my attitude is I don't have the right to put certain thoughts, ideas, words into somebody's brain. But most artists would consider that you are suffocating your potential if you try and live according to that philosophy. And for us who are just consumers of art and entertainment, who just want to enjoy beauty... Boy, are we challenged sometimes trying to separate out what is acceptable and unacceptable. Where does it cross the line of actually damaging us as opposed to enlightening us? Well, those are the things that we take up when we read these works of of literature. Probably most parents teach their children that adultery is, is wrong. So when they read Anna Karenina, and Anna Karenina commits adultery, We can talk about what does that mean in terms of how fulfilled, how much happiness she's going to glean from this experience. And can we generalize from the fact that that she does kill herself? We guess, actually, it's not wholly clear how she got in front of the train at the end, whether (laughs) whether she stumbled or jumped. But anyway, she did not end up happy. And we can generalize from that. Well, you must be really frustrated that my listenership right now is saying, uh, can you use an example from the Avengers or the X-Men? I probably could. (laughs) Or or even Harry Potter to help teach this principle? Because I have no idea who Dostoevsky or Anna Karenina, they can't even relate. But that's what really your college is trying to do, is trying to say great things have been thought. Stop pretending they didn't. 
We make uh, a, a real effort, I make a, a, an effort every single class period to connect the literature that we're reading and the history that we're reading with what's going on in the world today. And I will make references to things like the Avengers. One of my students wrote about the Avengers in, in the context of superheroes from the Iliad and the Odyssey the other day. And being unfamiliar with the Avengers, I had to go and, and watch the movie <laughs> so, so that I could understand why he was writing the way he did. Modern life is created by the history and literature that has gone before it. So I make a real effort, and I force my students to make an effort every class period to connect what we're reading in terms of history and literature with what's happening today. Okay, so then what you are battling is quite clear is that uh, it, it's the modernistic philosophy of only today's society is creating knowledge that's worthy of me indulging in. I think that the majority of young people have that opinion. If it's old, it's inapplicable. Yeah. Or if it's old, I'll, I'll be able to find something more contemporary, more updated, more hip, that's going to teach me the same lessons and in a way which is much stronger. And that is a fallacy. The preacher says there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> We've been down this road before. We'll go down it again. These things have been around forever. These ideas, the nihilistic ideas, have been around forever. They've never produced happiness, they've never produced contentment, they've never produced advancement. Ooh, but an agnostic would argue with you, an atheist would argue with you and say, no, I am achieving happiness with my philosophy. Why are you sitting back judging me as being less happy than you? Well... Is it a matter of the numbers? Is there are numbers, yes, there are numbers, if you want to get into them. Numbers are not my life, so I don't have them at my fingertips. But if you compare suicide rates for uh, doctors uh, or other educated... You're talking about PhD doctors, not medical Well, doctors. actually, I was talking about both, but... Uh, <laughs> okay. I mean, there are numbers of... Uh, what you're saying is that... A feeling of hopelessness, a feeling of desperation is more common with a non-religious person. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there's a lot of people that just won't call that spade a spade anymore. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's really an interesting... Uh, I, don't, I don't remember that I've ever talked to you about Charles Murray. Have I ever talked to you about Charles Murray's book? Uh, I'm aware of all the controversies that coming people want to... They, they want to petition him every time he goes and well, talks yeah, someplace. Well, yeah, they do that. But he, he wrote a book called Coming Apart, which I think is fascinating. And one of the things he documents in there is that people who hold to a sort of middle-class concept of morality are happier, they live longer, they're wealthier. On virtually any measure that you want to use, people who have an internalized system of morality do better than people who don't. The trouble is that those people do not preach what they practice. Explain. Okay. They are unwilling to say... Murray's general thesis is that there's kind of a, a division between a kind of an upper class and a lower class. It's very complex, but anyway, what he's saying is that in the upper class, people maintain the set of values. They believe in morality. They believe in getting married, getting educated, and staying married and teaching your children and so on. But they are unwilling to tell the underclass, if you want to get ahead, you need to do these things. They are practicing it, and the results are beneficial, 
but they are unwilling to say, you need to do this as well. They're unwilling to be judgmental. They've been taught not to judge. So we dumb the culture down. We say that this kind of aberrant behavior, I'm reluctant to talk about tattoos on people's arms and all this sort of stuff. No, but now you sound like so, an old geezer. Yes, that's right. But it's the old geezers who are doing well in all of these areas, but they are unwilling to tell the upcoming generation, if you want to be happy, get married, that's, stay that's married, been cited as and raise the, your kids. That's often cited as the core flaw of conservatism, is that conservatives seem less prone to preach their philosophy. Whereas those who are progressive or liberal, they're desperate to, to find converts, to make converts. Whereas conservatives are much more, I've found my way of looking at the world and I am happier here. But I don't feel quite as enthused about getting preachy and, and teaching yeah. other people that. I think that today's climate may, may encourage conservatives to be much more activist in trying to teach that this is the right way. Boy, you, it, it, depending on what generation you're in, conservative, liberal, progressive, they all have different meanings. So mm -hmm. we have to That's apply true, these yeah. to today and what yeah. those terms mean today. There's a lot of Republicans even who, or let's say there's a lot of conservatives who take pride in, in classifying themselves not as Republicans, but as conservatives, as if a lot of Republicans, even they, get persuaded to go avenues of, of liberalism and progressivism, whereas if you take the title conservative, you're less likely to find yourself going on those trails. The idea is we have lost a lot of arguments, and the other side has made a lot of converts because of how loud they are, because of how vocal, how vehement, how determined they are to get converts, whereas the very nature of being a religious, conservative, faith-oriented person is that you don't force that opinion on others. Yes, I think that's right. I don't want to know where I want to go here, but I think that one of the explanations for the success of Donald Trump as a politician is his willingness to confront that kind of we are better than you idea. Hillary Clinton talking about the basket of deplorables. Mario Cuomo saying anybody who believes in the Second Amendment has no place in New York State and invites, you know, these are... No, it's okay. I don't mind delving in politics sometimes because... Well, I don't want and to that, get into, that's your whole life. I, I mean, you are a political into, animal. No, but I don't want to get into the to, it uh, mean, yeah, it politics. But, what we're talking but I, about is education. At the same time, if your focus for Mount Liberty College is that, hey, we can learn, celebrate, immerse ourselves in all of the greatest beauties that the world has created, and it's, surprise, surprise, still going to preserve your faith. It's not going to challenge, it's not going to insist that you abandon all of your religious traditions and, and views and perspectives. Yes, and that is different, I think, yeah. than what becomes the objective of many schools of higher learning. So we can tell our students, you're going to run up against, in the books that we read, in the history and literature that we read, you're going to run up against a lot of ideas that are incompatible with what you've been taught. What we are going to say as instructors at Mount Liberty College, we're not going to say, those writings are right and your parents were wrong. What we're going to say is, you have to figure out how to sort this out. 
I've read all those books. You've read Freud, you've read Marx. Yes. Read, I yeah. mean, they're, they're there. They're part yeah. of world literature and history. I have read all those things, and here I am, still on the right side of, of the faith-not-faith faith divide. If you're interested in doing that, you can figure out how to get there as well. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to debunk Freud for you. I'll let you read Freud and let you figure out how to accommodate whatever it is he said with your own system of beliefs. Well, I think you have pinpointed the primary fear of parents who send off their birds to fly into the world is that they are afraid that the depth of their testimony somehow is not a part of them. And they're terrified that as they get out in the world and they get such a barrage of the other side belittling those values that they grew up with, that they're just, they're, they're helpless. I mean, the barrage is too strong. It's too, the pressure, you're, you're not accepted at all. I mean, one thing that we were taught from the time we went to kindergarten is that the most important thing is to at least find ourselves in a circle where we can function and feel comfortable. And when we're thrust into a society away from our families in a four-year college or in another type of education, post-high school education setting, you are so challenged on a daily basis, I mean, socially and intellectually, that if you retain those values, you're just not going to fit in. You're not going to be part of the in crowd. In fact, nothing that you say is going to be taken seriously. That a lot of people, they just have the inability to resist that. They, they don't, they are destroyed by that. It's just more common today. I think there was just a hundred years ago, maybe, and there's obviously, you can't simplify it that way, but it was more permitted to go to, see, we don't have this right now. We, we aren't in a society where you can have a diametrically opposed opinion, an opinion that you completely disagree with, and yet you can still respectfully drink it in, try and walk in that person's shoes, try and understand why they came to the conclusions that they did, and still be able to come back and say, I don't accept that conclusion, but I'm also not going to throw you into a furnace. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to denigrate you, call you inhuman. And right now we are so galvanized, one side against the other, in today's American politics and possibly throughout the world, that, I mean, the tribalism has become so visceral that it's very difficult for a person to function in an area or in, in a part of society that looks down upon religion. So they give it up. They abandon it. And I'm, I've never been sure why, because it's never been an intellectual challenge. I guess I've never been challenged to say, you can't really understand me. You can't really accept the higher view unless you abandon your religion, unless you consider that it might all be wrong. And I just think that I've never been in a position where that's really been a choice I've had to make. But most people think you well, do have to make a choice. And, and that's the, but that's the argument that the person who disagrees with you is always presenting. You're, you're a Latter-day Saint. You'll never really be able to understand what I'm trying to teach you because you've already got all of those walls around you and there ain't no breaking them down. Well, and it's like, yeah, I, I just, I, I, I don't think it was always that. I think a hundred years ago, it was okay to let the two mix together, intermingle, and come out 
with both sides preserved. Today, it immediately creates hostility. It creates a feeling of defensiveness, that two ideas cannot coexist. Two diametrically opposed ideas cannot coexist. And people are unwilling to compromise. They're not willing to try and say, well, these are the good things about the philosophy. I don't necessarily have to accept the core values of what you're presenting, but I can see that understanding parts of it may actually enhance my core values. We just don't have people, I guess, balancing or, or arguing from that perspective anymore. As much. You're trying to resurrect that with, Try, with know, Mount Liberty College. Two experiences. We uh, lived in Virginia as our children were growing up. and I went to back to school night to one of my children's high schools. I can't even remember which child it was, but it had a class in biology. And the, the biology teacher said, it is my goal during this academic year to convince every one of your children, speaking to us as parents, to convince every one of your children that Darwinism is correct. And I said, um, now would that be Darwinism or Neo-Darwinism or the Darwinian synthesis or cladistics? Exactly which Darwinian theory is it that you're going to convince my child is correct? Anyway, that's one experience. What you're saying is it's far more subtle and far more layered and that well, there are she people, was she they, was open about it. Well, what she what she was presenting was that religion and Darwinism cannot coexist. Yeah, but that's not true. No, that's true. there are ways to be able to accept well, certain theories of evolution and such, and still preserve faith. And that balance is something that many people are, feel. They feel it's an either or. I my faith is insufficient to allow me to believe in Darwinism. <laughs> well, yeah, poor Darwin. I, I, the idea that man was once an ape. Yeah. But I've often presented the idea that if we believe in a pre-existence, then the whole question is moot. Well, okay. Because things just came to the earth in a certain order. It already, if there was something called an Australopithecus caveman, it already existed, and it has gone on to its eternal reward. But it still exists as an Australopithecus. I mean, it still exists in the form that it came to the earth and went through its mortal probation with. So nothing evolved into anything else. Okay. Second experience. I was raised here in Salt Lake City as an LDS child. Okay, I graduated from high school, went to Columbia University. Okay, where I promptly ran up against people whose desires were to strip away my faith. And, and I was uh, relatively vulnerable. You see, you've never been through this experience, but I have. So I essentially, I, I was wandering around. I was just adopting everything that these people said in class. I remember parroting it back. I was at dinner with a friend one night and started parroting some of this better red than dead kind of stuff, I guess. And my friend looked at me and said, uh, Gordon, you don't believe that. And the way I tell this story is that I looked into my heart and I said, yeah, you're right, I don't believe We've that. already lost some of my audience. Better read than dead. You're talking about, I, I guess, 1960s yeah. tensions with regard to yes, the Vietnam was, War and yeah, communism. Better, yeah, it was better better to be communist than to, than to die fighting communism. So I was, uh, you know, I, I was prepared to go off to Cuba and, and cut sugar cane for Fidel Castro and, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And my friend looked at you me. You really went that far? Well, that's just, 
toward the liberal point of view? I did, yes. Well, so, you, you well did. yes and no. I, I was parroting these ideas which had been new to me, never having run up against this kind of stuff and, and being ill-equipped to argue with it. So my friend looked at me and he says, you don't believe it. And I looked at my heart and I said, no, you're right, I don't. Uh, it wasn't quite that simple, but, it, but basically that's, that's what happened. I recognized that he was right. I didn't believe that. So I had to start thinking about what is it I did believe and how to figure out how to defend what I, I really did believe, which led me to going off on a mission and you know, the rest is, is history. So anyway, Mount Liberty College is not engaged in the process of trying to strip faith away from its undergraduate students. We will expose them to ideas that are incompatible with the ideas that they've been raised with, but we will equip them with the tools to analyze those ideas, find out where the fallacies are. One of our teachers teaches a course called The Defense Against the Dark Arts, which is a Harry Potter uh, reference, but uh, the point of that class is to teach you how to examine logical propositions, figure out where the fallacies are and, and how to determine whether or not the arguments hold water or not. So that's the kind of education. That and what you're saying that most university settings don't do that anymore. No, no. They're not trying to teach you any kind of Socratic method or they're not really giving you any tools by which to judge the information that you are fed. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. And, 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 of course, they're going to argue that they do, that they will teach you these critical tools and that the, the result... But they will, as they are teaching you these tools, and I'm putting scare quotes around those tools there, okay. what they will teach you is that what you have been taught is wrong. And that's where we part company. We don't do that. We will give you the tools that will help you figure out not why what you've been taught is wrong, but how it is compatible with whatever subject matter we're dealing with. It can be science, it can be history, it can be uh, literature, possibly even mathematics. <laughs> possibly even possibly. mathematics. Yeah, I had a problem with that throughout my growing up years as well. But I, I regret now that I had some really bad math teachers, or maybe I was just, I made the decision like I described earlier, I'm not a math guy. And so as a result, just rejected and never took seriously and knew that I could daydream in math classes. But I think it would have made a difference. I was, only, I was in seventh grade by the time I got subjected well, to purely bad math teachers. I think they could have, if they had said something like, this is how you build bridges. This is how you explore the universe. Never did. They always, it was always cold, hard math. Never described the benefits of math or the potential of math. Yeah, and see, that, that's where classical education, which includes mathematics, that's one of its strengths. Because the kind of mathematics that we will teach at Liberty College, that's upper division classes, we haven't gotten there yet, but they will be Euclid, Pythagoras, who discovered the uses of mathematics and integrated them into a classical education. Well, I grew up in the 80s but I, or 70s, but I would still have to say that that was missing. No. From the math that was being taught me, it was never presented with a practical application. Story problems don't count. Nobody was really making me excited about what math could help me do in having a happier life. But, you know, we all have our emphasis, what we're really interested in. So you had your freshman class. Mm -hmm. How many years, theoretically, would Mount Liberty College do 
graduate studies or post high school studies? It's a four year college. It's a four year so, college. Yes, and it offers a degree in liberal arts. All the students take essentially the same classes. Now you've got to give us the old definition of liberal arts. Yeah. I mean that word we don't even you use the word liberal in that and suddenly we don't even know what it means anymore. Well it's yeah, it's changed its meaning. But liberal arts is history, literature, the psychology of the individual, religion, mathematics, music, art. Those are the, the subjects of the, a liberal arts education. And they're not general ed classes to be got out of the way of as soon as possible. General ed is all we do. <laughs> See, this is the argument that many people have against college in general today. And that is there seems to be a much lower placement rate in a lot of majors at different sure. universities yeah. than there used to be. Mm -hmm. And so somebody goes through four years of Mount Liberty College. Right. What is it that they then do to feed their families? Now they have to go get trained. And there are different ways to do that. A liberal arts education, communications is an excellent preparation for law school, if you want to go into law, communications, public relations. Oddly enough, do you know what the number one major is for doctors? The number one undergraduate major for doctors. You might surprise me, what? <laughs> it is philosophy, which is well, one of the liberal arts classes. This is kind of exciting because it's what I always teach people who want to write the great American novel or think they want to make a living in the oh, yeah. arts. Yeah. You tell them the last thing you want to do if you want to make a living in the arts is to major in an artistic topic or, or degree. Right. What the arts are doing is celebrating living life. So learn about philosophy, learn about science, learn about literature, learn about every, things that have nothing to do with the actual act of writing. Because that's pretty easy. You're, you're, you're a perfect spokesman for Mount Liberty College. Well, there Chris. you go. We have, a, we have a member of our board of advisors. His name is McKay Danes. He's a movie producer. He says he talks to students all the time, and, and they say, oh, well, we want to be movie producers, so what should we study in college? He says, don't study movie production. Yeah, don't major in cinema. <laughs> don't major in cinema. But that's totally diametrically opposed to the way that kids are being taught today. That's, that's right. But I would tell them, if you want to go into the arts, learn how to appreciate and love and understand life. Have something to say, not just know suppose, how to write. Suppose you want to be a computer coder. All you want to do is be a coder. Teach you to code in six weeks. I can't, but somebody can teach you to code in six yeah, weeks. Young supple minds can learn that stuff. Right. We, we're, we're all... But what you need... Our arteries are hardened. What so. you need is four years of education in what to code and perhaps what not to code. In other words, you want a well-balanced person to then go off and make decisions yeah. about how they're going to apply their understanding of the world and do good things with particular vocations or professions. Yes. But to be candid about it, after four years at Mount Liberty College, you will need, in order to get a paying job, a job that actually will allow you to support a spouse and family, can't say wife and family anymore. So, <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> okay, to support your wife and family, you will need training. And that training can come, as in my case, with a, going to a graduate school of education. It could mean going to law school. It could be, mean getting an MBA. Well, many people who go to college are figuring that four years is all they need. So they'll be disheartened immediately by the idea of, hold, hold it a second, you're saying four years yep. 
And then I decide to learn about something that I will use in order to make a living. Yep, that's what we're saying. Well, are you saying that you're resurrecting a philosophy of old? Yeah. Or that you're saying the idea of what they're pursuing today, the neocon philosophy of education, is really selling humanity short. It is creating half-baked people. Yes, that's right. Half-baked people. I like that. Yeah, there you go. And the kind of thing that you're trying to resurrect with a college like Mount Liberty is the idea of let me create a well-balanced, healthy person who has all of the tools of being able to judge right and wrong. Yes. And then they go out and make their contribution to the world in whatever vocation floats their boat. Absolutely right. And as I said, you're you're an excellent spokesman for the college. I appreciate that. Well, I'm an excellent, I'm a spokesman for Gordon Jones. And yeah. most of my listeners may not be aware of it. The last three or four really complex tennis shoes novels have all been edited by Gordon. <laughs> I, he is like uh, the final say before I even let a manuscript go before the eyes of my publisher because he will bring all of the old school values about how you communicate using words, being a wordsmith, to my manuscripts. And even if I don't accept his ideas or his suggested changes, it makes me rethink it all. And even if I don't maybe take his suggestions, I find a third alternative I think is better than mine and his put together. There's very few people that you can find in your life. That's like gold. If you can find an editor... A person in your life who's not so caught up in worried about their relationship with you so that they can give you neutral, real, valuable feedback and and know that you have the maturity, I guess, to not let that destroy your ego, destroy your creative juices. If you find a person like that, you hang on to that like gold. That's what I've appreciated about Gordon is we've known each other for a few years, but I quickly learned through conversations with him that he was that kind of gold. And the literal experience of having him review and red mark and completely tear up my chapters. <laughs> so I'm a better writer as a result of Gordon's well-balanced education and experience. Well, you're very kind. Let me make at least one, maybe two, two other. Oh, yeah, I know what the other one was. Two more points. One is that We are not unaware that parents want to send their children to college in order for them to be able to get a job. We have a number of people on our board of advisors, and we're recruiting more all the time, who have connections in the real world, who will establish relationships with our students so that as they become upperclassmen, get be juniors and seniors, they will spend part of their time in the real world working as interns or in practica or perhaps volunteering in Venezuela among the poor, any number of... So you're genuinely trying to establish a college that can provide the best of what the best colleges can provide anywhere. Yes. Across the world. And we have already had one high school principal, for an example, tell us that any graduate of Mount Liberty College who wants a job teaching, he will hire. He says, because anybody who's gone through the four years of education that you have at Mount Liberty will be already qualified to teach, even without a teaching degree, which you used to have to get, but you don't anymore. So there are people out there who recognize the value of this kind of education and will reward it by hiring those kind of people and providing 
the kind of training then that they need for that specific job. So a computer company would say, here's a Mount Liberty graduate. We can teach them to code in six weeks, but we know that they've already learned what to code and what not to code and how to deal with other people, how to integrate that, what things will appeal and so on. Second point was, we're really cheap. Um, <laughs> how much is it for a semester? Um, Twenty-four fifty a semester. There is no other college in Utah or anywhere that I'm aware of that is as cheap as we are. But there's more. Okay. <laughs> we have so far been able to get enough financial support from charitable organizations that we were able to give every one of our 10 students scholarships so that they're out-of-pocket expenses for this first semester and this next semester of only $800 a semester. Well, of course, in the <clears throat> show notes of this particular episode, I'll put all the information in there that a person needs to know in order to contact you, to get brochures, get information, whatever Great. else they need. Great. But I want you just in a verbal way, in an audible way, tell us what a person needs to do in order to find out more about Mount Liberty College. We have a website, mountlibertycollege.org. Uh, That's the convenient. Yeah, all the information, one word as they always say, yes. all the information is there. We don't have any formal admission requirements. We mostly have enrolled homeschooled or charter schooled students who have graduated from high school, but we do have one student who has an early enrollment. She's finishing up her high school career while she's studying with us full time. We don't object to early enrollment, so if, you, if your children have... What you're saying is you can be going to high school and still supplement yeah, by and, making advances. And, it, and if you feel like your children, or if you're a young person, you feel like you've pretty much gotten everything you can get out of high school and you're ready to move on, we will interview you and see if you can meet the requirements that we have, which are not hard and fast. It's a, a judgment that we would make in terms of an interview, whether you could handle the workload. Uh, Mount Liberty is not an easy school. <laughs> well, that's the cliche that a lot of people will apply to people who come out of homeschooling or charter schools yeah. is that it is a less than superior high school education. Yeah. And what you're saying is don't expect that kind of don't, free ride don't at that, no, no. You, The requirements for graduation are fairly difficult. They require work. If you're not interested in working, then go somewhere else. There are plenty of schools that you can get through without doing any work at all. Mount Liberty is not one of them. You don't have to take the ACT or the SAT, although if you have taken it, that's useful. There is also a classical, I, I can't remember what it's called right now. It's, it's like the SAT, but it's for homeschooled, charter-schooled students in the classics to see how well they do. And we actually administer that test. You can find that on the website as well. Well, I, I'm not sure how much I know about the mechanics of how Mount Liberty College actually operates, but I can attest to the quality of, of Gordon Jones and the standards that he would put into any project that he pursues and the overall vision of what he hopes to accomplish for the students. That reason alone should at least get a person to go uh, check out mountlibertycollege.org and get all the information that they can. If you're looking for some alternatives. And if you have a child that's in high school and you want to see what it's like, send them down. We're located physically in Murray. Which is a part of Salt Lake County. Yeah. Salt for those County. who are in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to send them down, we'll have them sit in a class and see how it works. We'd be happy to do that. 
There is some limited capacity to take the courses online in the sense that you, you can What you're Skype saying is, is you are in a building phase and yeah. in a couple of years this will all be much more, you will be a pioneer. Of my 10 students, nine of them are in the classroom. One of them comes in by Zoom from Arizona. And primarily we don't want to be an online school because the face-to-face -face interaction is extremely valuable. So I don't mind adding a student or two to a critical mass. I like technology, but there's nothing like sitting in a classroom around a table with seven or eight other students and talking about Anna Karenina. There you go. <laughs> I respect the objective. I guess what I respect is the respect that this kind of educational approach can have for a person who comes into their forum already having some valuable established virtues and religious philosophies. Life itself is going to present challenges sure. without you deliberately wanting to destroy somebody's testimony. Right. So what you're saying is challenges are going to be there, mm -hmm. but we'll give you the tools to be able to know the difference. That's what we're doing. That's excellent. Thank you. Gordon, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank it's you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Chris. Come oh, I'm sure it is. I so appreciate you, Gordon. I owe him a lot, of, and I've never paid him. He just does this. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much well, for joining us. he gave me a complete us. set of the books. So oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. He got books. Okay, so there you go. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time. Again, I'd like to express my appreciation to Gordon for his dedication to advance the causes of excellence and goodness, in short, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope this topic has inspired reflection, churned up good thoughts, and advanced righteous intentions. Finally, and again, I'd like to thank you, my listeners here on Forever LDS. Remember, if you don't feel as close to the Lord today as you did yesterday, well, hey, that's not his fault. Find another patsy. Maybe look in the mirror. May all of our Heavenly Father's grandest and most beautiful blessings be yours in upcoming days and weeks until, and at last, we have the opportunity to bring to you yet another episode of Forever LDS. This is Chris Heimerdinger, and this is, well, I guess I just said that, it's Forever LDS. Forever LDS.